A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, the author of How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood. My debut novel, Insatiable, is coming in February and there's a limited signed edition available to pre-order from Waterstones for your book listeners. Huge thanks to everyone who has pre-ordered. I'm so excited for you to meet Violet. Now, on to this week's guest, a writer I've enjoyed and admired for many years, Emily Gould is the author of several books, and I think her latest novel, Perfect Tunes, is her best yet. It's the story of Laura and Callie, a pair of ambitious creative friends who are on the brink of making it in the music scene when real life conspires to separate them. It features the themes I've always loved reading in Emily's writing, ambition, creativity, comparison, achievement, and the way we judge ourselves as women in the world. Emily and I talked about fame and celebrity, literary criticism, life as a woman on the internet, and when children's books get dark. Enjoy. What have you been reading lately that you've loved, and have your reading habits changed at all during this mad year? I've been really bad about reading uh, lately, I think because of a combination of the pandemic and because um, it was a year of big changes for me in terms of how much I have to read for my work. Um, So up until very recently, I was uh, constantly reading submissions for my imprint with Ruth Curry, Emily Books. So we were constantly receiving submissions and reading them in this sort of evaluative way. And then I was also reading books that were similar to the ones that we were publishing that were new books that were coming out uh, just to sort of get a sense of what was out there in the in the world, in the marketplace, and also just reading books with an eye to possibly reviewing them, you know, just like constantly having like two novels and, an, and a nonfiction book going at all times, plus whatever I was reading to my children, which kind of counts. It took a while, but I wound down the imprint. So our last book was published in March, actually had the launch event. Uh, it was my first Zoom launch event for an author on March 13th like at the moment that everything was shutting down. Since then, it's like my reading time has been my own, fully my own for the first time in years, but also it's just been impossible to focus on novels. Um, Sorry, that's a really long-winded way of saying that I've only managed to read a a very, very few books during this time, but they've all meant so much to me, just that I was able to immerse myself in a world that isn't like my current reality. And also, I, I felt like I... I read really different things than I would ha- than I would have um, 
you know, in my previous reading life, which was so professionalized. More specifically, I read um, Circe, which took me two years to get around to, and everyone I know had recommended it to me, and I had said, oh, yeah, it's not really my thing. You know, it's kind of like this voice of the narrator is very sort of ancient Greek, and I couldn't, I just picked it up and couldn't get into it a bunch of times, but then I finally got into it, and it's this great book for reading in a pandemic because it has nothing to do with anything in contemporary life except for of course you know because of its classical themes it's like oh my motherhood experiences are just like those of immortal demigoddess who lives on an island where she turns men into pigs um like we have a ton in common actually I mean honestly I felt the same about that book and everyone's gone on about you know how great it is I'm like yes of course it must be and I'm like oh I I just never really wanted to read about ancient Greece I like historically the furthest back I can go is like 1920 so how would what made you connect with it just that it was so distant and separate from everything that's happening in the world and yet the themes are perennial yeah, I didn't, I didn't even want to read anything that took place in recognizable modernity. Like, it was too painful to me to read something where characters were able to take the subway, you know? Because um, it would just remind me of all of the sort of quotidian experiences that we've lost, you know, tempor- some temporarily, some possibly forever that are just part of living in a city and around people yeah that was huge um I got back into being able to read about people and and life and contemporary life uh I mean that was like a you know or early quarantine temporary phase um one of the first books that I read because it was just so captivating and this has nothing to do with anything that I just said about, you know, real life and like people touching each other's faces in a book and that being sort of uh, like triggering was Ariel Levy's ghostwritten Demi Moore memoir. Did you oh, read that? Oh, I'm desperate to read that. Tell me it's about so it. It's so good. It's so good. Oh my God. It's so, it's, it's perfect. It's just like so well done. She really inhabits Demi Moore's voice in a way that is um it feels very true to to me more like she doesn't ever say something that you can't actually imagine to me more saying but of course she's expressing it really well because she's a great writer it's sort of a model for it's like a master class in ghostwriting a celebrity autobiography in case that's something that interests you um but also to me more has just had a crazy life i mean she really has it, it's the closest I've ever come, I think, to reading anything that really gave me sort of like a um, immersive sensory impression of what it is like to actually go from being like a regular person to being really famous, like genuinely famous at a time when that used to mean something totally different than it does now. I mean, I mean, I guess there are still people who are really, really famous, but you know, like it being famous 30 years ago and being famous now is like there are sort of different valences anyway i don't know if i'm selling this book properly but the revelations about her marriages all of her experiences with her children like i mean i don't really care about to me more and i still love this book and i was so grateful that it existed because it was just riveting and then more recently i read this novel that comes out here. I don't know where when it comes out in the UK. Um, I have to find out actually because I want to like try to review it for 
like the LRB. That would be amazing. Um, by this woman who's very much best known as a really scathing book critic uh, named Lauren Euler, and it's her debut novel. And I came into it with like kind of, you know, not low expectations, but like you sort of expect someone's debut novel to not be, uh, you know, masterful. You expect them to sort of be finding their footing in terms of their voice and their like themes. And she just wields such amazing authorial control. Like she really, she takes your attention, she just grabs it and you're with her wherever she wants to go with the story, Um, which I won't even bother to describe the actual plot of the book because it sounds so boring and unappealing. Oh, but so often that's my absolute favourite kind of book. It's like, oh, it's a garden party in an afternoon in real time. And I'm like, oh, I know it's going to be good. Get it in my face. It's like that. It's like basically the narrator like goes to Berlin and like fucks around for a year. I mean, that does sound like that's great the whole. That's the whole book. Like, What's that's it the entire called? Book. What's the title? Fake Accounts, which is a good title, I think. Oh, that's a good and title. It, and it comes out here in um, in the winter, I think. It comes out in maybe like February. So soon. Anyway. When someone is, you know, a, a critic and is scathing, there's an element of, I don't know, preliminary schadenfreude, maybe, or it's sort of thrilling when it is that good, but also like, oh, I was preparing myself to sneer because you had sneered so often and, and I can't. I found it gratifying that it would defy people's expectations, but I'm sure people will sneer anyway because I think it will be a polarizing book. Like, not everyone, I assume, shares my taste for uh, meandering accounts of going to Berlin and going on internet dates and drinking a lot, you know? (laughs) Like, that might be a niche interest, but it interests me, so... (laughs) Like, someone... And also just, like, someone describing their emotional experiences in very minute detail, it interests me, and, again, you know, not everyone's cup of tea. Some people are more into, like, international espionage or whatever. You know? Well, I'm I'm sold on this. Um, so I'm really interested in Emily books and that for a while your job was to kind of get a sense of what was your taste, but also what people would buy and love and respond to. And were you able to just be very sort of like pure in your intentions or was it difficult to have that the difference between reading as an editor and reading as a book lover and a passionate reader? That's such a great question. Um, I feel really lucky to have had this experience of having like professionalized my taste and like and made like having great taste in books be sort of my career for a big chunk of my 30s. Um, but I think what started to happen toward the end of the project and why I decided that we should stop doing it, at least in this form, at least for now, is that I really, you know, I started out like, oh, I'm figuring out what my thing is. It's so exciting. I'm encountering it in all these different ways. I'm refining what I what I thought that I liked and I'm learning to name it. And that's so invigorating and exciting. And also I was, when I started doing this, you know, I was like 29 or 30 and I was like, I can change the world. <laughs> like I can shape what books are read. I will give people a voice who didn't have one before, which is like this very sort of, uh, I mean, there, there are all kinds of problems with that. That kind of, I hope it's okay to call it naivety, because I recognize that in myself. That often yields lots of good results. Naivety would be like the kindest thing that you could call it, probably. Um, But 
you know, it was, it was really, it was really exciting. And I, and I enjoyed it so much at the beginning. And then by the end, one of the many problems that I encountered was that I felt like I wasn't, I didn't like my thing anymore. I had a thing and then I sort of exhausted it. And now I might like something else, I guess. Like I still, I still recognize it when I see it and I'm like, oh, that's, this is an Emily book. Like this is a book that we could have published, but it doesn't resonate with me in the same way. I think it sort of like speaks maybe more to the person I was, you know, like a decade ago. Not that I'm a totally different person now, but um, I do think that my tastes, you know, are, are changing. And I guess I haven't, figured out what that means yet. I do think that some, as we change, we look for ourselves in stories. And I think that things being relatable, that label can be a little reductive. You and me are both women on the internet. <laughs> and that, you know, <laughs> the relatability of things is, it's the way that things can be marketed and exploited. And it sort of, you know, goes both ways. And, you know, we are products and we are consumers. But... I do think that as we change, we do look for ourselves in books, especially when, you know, life is becomes new. And I think it feels like it's so easy to find those voices, especially of women in their 20s, you know, right when everything is, is beginning. And sometimes life is much more interesting when there, you've already gone down several roads and some of them have been, you know, dead ends and wrong turns and it's not that sort of breathless, like this new shiny thing I'm going to go out there and shape. It's it's much more complicated than that and I wonder if those are the stories that we then start to seek out. I think you're exactly right. I mean, I'm hoping that I will find, you know, I, so, I sort of already have this strong sense of what the Lodestar books of my late 20s and early 30s were. I mean, I really codified it and I, I created this sort of library of, of those books. And I hope that I enlarged their readership and brought them to people who might be wouldn't have encountered them before. I'm very curious about what will be the lodestar books of the next part of my life. And I really have no idea. Was there a particular book that made you think, this is what I want Emily books to be? Well, one of the first books that we did as a book club pick before we became a publisher was uh, Eileen Miles' book, Inferno. It wasn't the first of Eileen's books that I'd read, but I sort of, I read it and thought, this deserves the widest possible audience. And it was before Eileen had really been taken up. And I think it was before they got a Guggenheim Fellowship, which is like a huge deal here. I mean, that book was independently published. It wasn't published by a major publisher. And it was just really straightforwardly like a, I mean, it was a novel, but um, first, pers- first person and probably pretty autobiographical. I don't think Eileen would have any problem with someone saying that it was, it was sort of a fictional autobiography about just coming to New York and in the seventies and being like a, you know, queer person who's finding their way in the world, dabbling in drugs, having problem with alcohol, doing sex work, um, just, you know, like checking all the boxes, like everything that I was really interested in reading about at that time, but told in this very, very straightforward, very unambiguous way, no lyricism, no long flowery sentences, no sort of um, figurative language, just really, really precise language that 
described like physical experiences, but also thoughts and feelings. I'm doing a bad job of explaining it, but something in that book felt really revolutionary to me. Like I hadn't read anything like it before. You've absolutely made me want to read it. And it sounds a tiny, tiny bit like Just Kids, Patti Smith, which obviously I love that book so much. Obviously, it is very flowering places because she's a poet. And of course, that's loud. and That's her style. I definitely felt with that that. It was a bit, you know, the Seinfeld episode, like yada, yada, yada. And like bits were like missed out. And it's like, oh, suddenly Robert Mapplethorpe's really famous. And suddenly they're in the Chelsea Hotel and suddenly they're not. And there were, and it almost felt like the gaps and the bits that missed out, they were probably much more interesting. So the idea of someone being really straightforward in describing, you know, that era and what it was like to live in the margins on that era is something I long to read. Yeah, I think you would love it. I think you, it, it is... It's sort of like if just kids, well, Eileen's a poet too, but really different kind of poet. Yeah, it's sort of like that same story, but what if you don't become a uh, globally famous rock star, you know, and instead you remain a um, poet who lives in a tenement apartment in the East Village, you know, for the next like several decades. I guess those themes, it just made me think of your book, Perfect Genes, of that sort of being creative and, and dreaming and things happen and you take a different path. Yeah, I guess it's it's something that I think about a lot, the randomness of who sort of ascends to like the highest realms of just people knowing their work. I'm sure I will continue to write about it because I guess I have sort of written about it in some way in most things that I've ever published. I wanted to go back to Demi Moore because I think it's really interesting that at Gulka you were covering a celebrity but it was at that very very time when everything changed and that seemed to be I think the moment like the early aughts or the mid you know like pre-2010 I guess and that just when the sort of the very old school everything's controlled there aren't many celebrities and we don't know that much about them and there are paps and there's gossip but then the internet just turns everything all over and that we now live in a world where so many people can have that sort of restlessness and that kind of search for identity and what's interesting and uncomfortable is when are we expressing our creativity and when are we just desperate for validation the shift that happened that year was uh social media like the pop the dawn of and and popularization of Facebook and then just a little bit later uh, Twitter so um, the year that I worked at Gawker was 2006 to 2007 and I didn't have uh, you know any sort of like social media presence before then before 2006 2007 if you wanted to be really online you had to do it via your blog right you had to be sort of like a weirdo outlier to spend a lot of time online and now it's just this very, very, very commonplace taken for granted thing. We sort of, if we're not careful, forget that it didn't used to be this way. And that in fact, things shifted so incredibly rapidly, but in these subtle ways by degrees, so that unless you were working on the front lines of it, it was really hard to have a sense of how radically things were shifting. And I think that's also, you know, it took about 10 years for the chickens to really come home to roost um, in terms of like the um, extremely bad aspects of that shift in um, everyone's media consumption habits and also the way that we communicate with each other. But now I think it's getting to be clear to pretty much everyone that like we let a bunch of 
teenage boys with not great communication skills reshape the way that we think and feel and talk to each other. And like, we shouldn't have done that. (laughs) That was a bad call. And uh, we probably need to like radically reorient our world now to the extent that that's even possible. Just my two cents. I'm completely with you. I was thinking, you know, people would be like, oh, what's the, the great pandemic novel going to be? I'm, like, I, I'm kind of still waiting for the great social media novel. I, d- I don't think it's a novel. I think it's a memoir. And I think it's Anna Wiener's book, Uncanny Valley. That book, I think, is like the definitive document of what, like, what happened, who had the power, who had, like, how it shifted, who has the power now. And it's just told from the perspective of, like, an ordinary worker at a tech company who just happens to be a super brilliant writer. She sort of embedded herself, maybe without knowing at the time that that was what she was doing. Did you like that book? Did you read it? Weirdly, I was just listening to her being interviewed on the Cut podcast and thinking, I should read this. Yeah, you got to read it. It's so good. It's so it's like hard to even I don't know. I tr- I tried to write about it when it came out and I just kept being stymied by the fact that everything that I was thinking was something that like at once seemed very obvious but also seemed like it needed to be articulated, which I think is what she does so brilliantly in the book. It's like she takes these things that we all sort of like know and um and says them in a way that make them make you realize that it's not actually commonplace knowledge. As much as I a huge part of me doesn't want to write and think about all the stuff that we were just talking about. Um, I find it really hard to, like, I know, um, or I'm assuming you probably read my most recent essay for The Cut, which was about that Gawker year of my life and my experience with being, um, you know, publicly shamed. (laughs) Did you read that one? I did. It was really, really powerful. And it just made me think how, you know, young women are used as collateral. I know. It's hard to focus on it right now because it seems like there are so many more problems in the world that are much more pressing. But in a way, I think it is important to go back to that moment and to historicize it, to contextualize it. And I was there, you know? So I do feel like I have this responsibility to keep telling this story. I don't no, and and in different ways, you know, I've like I've incorporated it into fiction, and I've written about it in essays a bunch of times. But I think it's something that belongs to a lot of different people who experienced it in many different ways. But I still feel like I keep there's a reason I keep going back there, you know. And before I can sort of figure out what the next thing is I have to I I still feel this pull to do sort of like the definitive version of that story and I don't you know I'm I'm never like going to my desk and and feeling like oh today I want to write about the worst shit that's ever happened to me but you know it's it's like I for better or worse it's what I have to work with are there any books that you remember what the first book you remember reading and knowing that maybe you shouldn't be reading it? I definitely read a ton of books before I was ready to or, or understood what they were really about. Um, 
and I and now I and now I think I'm doing um maybe doing the same thing to my son who's five just because I'm so bored that I want to read him books that are interesting to to me and he's probably not quite ready for them yet like we read Charlotte's Web recently and I had totally forgotten how I mean that book is just incredibly sad just like really profoundly sad and he asked a lot of questions he's been like on a little bit of a reckoning with his mortality kick ever since and like that was a month ago um I mean I'm sure it's fine like I think he's probably not scarred for life but I I should probably like course correct a little bit and not keep exposing him to uh you know spider death media maybe maybe no death in the next one but oh my sisters like to make me cry by reciting the last line and it still gets me and i'm 35 it is not often that you meet someone who's a true friend or a writer charlotte was both um at the moment i know it's a very slow meander but i'm reading eb white's letters i don't know if you've ever oh yeah no there i haven't for years but yeah oh it's a joy and i'm really really slow but it's just the perfect thing to kind of you know just read a few every morning and nothing changes he likes having written he hates writing he just wants to be out on his farm in maine um no one ever seems to pay him what's depressing is um Rates for writers haven't changed much. He's getting paid the same as Jesus before Jesus. I do today. That's that's really dark. Yeah, I've actually been to um, that town in Maine. It's it's like the most beautiful place in the world. At least in the summer. Never been there in the winter. Probably not somewhere you would really want to spend a winter. But in the summer, it's just like outlandishly wonderful there. Like, it just smells really great. Uh, is there anything that you're longing to read him but thinking, oh, maybe I need to wait a few years? The first chapter book that I remember reading um, with having my parents read it to me, even though I could read it to myself, but just wanting them to read it to me and having that be, like, a really wonderful experience that I remember was A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, wow. Which, yeah, I think I could probably get away with it now, but he wouldn't really, like probably better to save it for when he's like seven or eight you know and if he and if he hates it I'll be heartbroken but have you reread it since that very first time I I have it's it's okay as an adult the sort of like religious undertones definitely come to the forefront more it also is a I guess I mean creepy is the wrong word but I don't really love that Meg meets the guy who she's gonna marry as like a prepubescent person that's like not how ideally one's life goes although I do you know (laughs) kids love to talk about who they're gonna marry it's so funny like my my son is always telling me like which of his classmates he's affianced to and it's like (laughs) okay hope it works out for you and Jasper (laughs) I mean does it does it change often Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I suppose that's encouraging. If you, you know, well, you know, don't you, this, this will be forever. And then it's like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll delay that one. I think it's really precious, actually. I mean, my son can be kind of an asshole, but this is a very tender part of him. He sort of will give his heart to anyone. And he likes to um, communicate with his friends right now by sending them little videos of himself. And they'll send him a little video back. And it's like a lot less taxing than, you know, like what we're doing, which like they can't do it. They're very bad at it. And uh, he ends his little 
snippets, his little like videos with, okay, I love you. Bye. And oh, he says I love you to like pretty, pretty much everyone, which I'm like, I'm sure he does love them, you know, in a way. Um, but he just has no, like, that's just to him. That's just like how you end a call. That is the cutest thing ever. It's really cute. <laughs> Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Emily soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, The Baby Group by Caroline Kokorin. New mum Scarlett is embracing life in Cheshire, a career change, a glamorous new home and a glossy gang of new mum friends when her life is shattered by revenge porn as an explicit video is sent to everyone she knows. I loved Caroline's debut through the wall and I love the baby group for very similar reasons. Caroline has taken a twisting, thrilling and uncomfortable plot and used it to tell a story about vulnerability, humanity and our complex relationships with ourselves, our past and our families. It's compelling, extremely well written and thrillingly immersive. Losing myself fully in Scarlet's story was a very welcome diversion from life in these times. The Baby Group by Caroline Kagorin is published by Avon and it's out now. Now, back to Emily. I wanted to ask whether there are any people in books that you've had crushes on or people, you know, when you've read it. Well, I would totally marry them if they existed and this was real. Um, oh my God, my I'm so dead inside. I don't even remember the last time that a book made me feel like, you know, sex feelings. Uh, I'm just drawing. I'm just drawing a total, total blank. One of my favorite books is um, my friend Chad's book, The Art of Fielding. Chad Harbach's book, The Art of Fielding. Have you read that? The Art of Fielding. I thought you said The Art of Shielding. Yeah. Did they just write that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be good too. But yeah, no, The Art of Fielding. And I remember reading it and getting really confused for a minute about whether I had like a crush on Chad, which full disclosure, he's my husband's best friend. So that would have been really awkward. But I was like, oh no, I just have these feelings for like a 
made up character in the book who actually has nothing to do with Chad and actually might be like partially based on my husband who conveniently I'm married to. So that worked out. I didn't even have to be in like, I didn't even have to commit an imaginary infidelity. Also Chad, like I love him like a brother, but like not my thing at all. So hairy. Like his entire, <laughs> it's really, he's hairy in that way that like his entire back is covered with that, with hair. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, some people love that. I'm not, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum, but it's not <laughs> my, not my favorite. I love thing. that expression. We had a, a neighbor um, when we lived in London. Um, gosh, I probably shouldn't say this, I might be listening, but I do, I'm walking past me like, hey, that's a weird jumper. Is that like Angora? Mohat? Oh my God. That's, that is them. <laughs> no, that's just your pelt, your, your human pelt. Maybe <laughs> sort of, you know, descended from like from vikings like it's it's the kind of thing you'd grow for a cold nordic winter i mean it could come in really handy yeah you could write one could write um a fabulous hallmark movie i feel about a friend who's let's say you're like not that this was you but your friend's relationship is in trouble and you're a writer and you think oh i'm gonna write a book uh, the hero is gonna be like the husband and this is gonna make or whoever or partner and this is going to make the other partner fall back in love with them but they fall back in love with the writer and it backfires that's great i love it you should pitch that that sounds so good yeah like a reverse pina colada song basically yeah, exactly oh uh, you just have to yeah. christmas it up yeah are there any books that you would like to make into movies that was a really clunky segue and i didn't do that on purpose you know what um susan Choi's books have you read Susan Choi's books? I, everyone probably is most familiar with Trust Exercise, which came out last year and it won the National Book Award and it, everyone loved it, um, except for some people hated it, but I loved it. Some of her books already have been made into the movies, but one that hasn't that I would really love to see is My Education, which is just this like super steamy campus novel of... Uh, this young woman who falls in love with her charismatic professor's wife. Weren't expecting the wife. Um, and yeah, hijinks ensue, but it's really great. And like tons of sex, that would be a good movie. I was just thinking about it because the, I think the, the movie version of um, American Woman, which is uh, one of her earlier novels, comes out on streaming this week. And I'm going to watch it because... That seems like a fun thing to do. I'm a huge fan of her work in general. Um, I don't have. A, I don't know. I don't have any other really good. Like I'm not a good development executive. It's not my bag, unfortunately. It'd be fun. What's the last book that you gave someone as a gift? No, I do. I do all the time. Um, although these days I'm more apt to give children's books to my friends who've just had children. Um, and um, I choose those with great care because if a children's book is a stinker and you still have to read it like thousands of times, it really does like lasting damage um, neurologically. So, um, God, I hate Elmo so much. But the like adult books that I that I tend to give people are sort of hand around after I've, I've I've finished with them are more likely to be graphic novels. I'm like I'm always trying to evangelize on behalf of graphic novels because I think you know a lot of people just don't read them and 
it's this like huge missed opportunity. They're so great. And if you like regular novels, like probably you'll also like illustrated ones. I love that. You know? If you like this, you'll love the ones with pictures. I'm really making a PSA for the like Graphic Novel Council of America and Canada. Um, a lot of them come from Canada for some reason. I guess because there's state support for the arts there. Yeah, my most recent graphic novel that I loved and that I gave to a friend and that I would recommend to anyone who has anything to do with uh, the visual art world or even design or even has a master's degree in any kind of fine art um, is called Wendy Master of Art. (laughs) And it's about this woman who is in a fine arts MFA program in a small town in Canada. Again, not a super compelling premise but it was this like it's it's just like it's super hilarious the drawings are very simplistic but they like convey a lot of information with just like a few really perfect lines and um I felt like it made me appreciate art more like all kinds of art like it made me sort of take art seriously in a new way because a lot of times you know you sort of think of visual art as something that is either like inaccessible to everyone except for really rich people um but and which is gross and horrible um or just like like a scam basically like something that you know like when people are like putting like some like car keys in like a vitrine of jello or whatever which I mean it's fine but you're but you're sort of like I see what you did there you scam artist and like and this this just made me sort of revise some of my knee-jerk philistinism that sounds great I do think that which is art maybe more than any other form of art like visual art there's so much like this is good and this is bad, and this is what you think of this. And so it's also, what is subjective is so often presented as objective. And if you feel excluded by that world because it's a very excluding world, it's so hard to know even how to form an opinion or or how to look at something. Because, you know, so many many writers use it a little bit lazily as, I think, a stand-in for writing, which can't be dramatized in the same way. So it's like, she painted and painted until she could paint no more. And it's like, come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) But I wonder whether, you know, if we feel a little extra alienated by and angry about art because it sometimes it really pictures are the opposite of words no I'm so, I'm so jealous I mean I'm jealous of all of my friends who are cartoonists for sure like it, it also because like you do have to do a lot of sort of like boring scut work in both mediums media but at least when you're like just doing like you know filling in like the little details of a page of of a comic book or something you can like listen to the radio (laughs) you can like listen to a podcast at the same time whereas like you have you can't like disassociate from your writing it doesn't work like you have to be there all the time that's the really annoying part (laughs) I think I just I suppose I sometimes feel as though like words are so clunky and I'm like if I could draw this in a beautiful and concise way that is what I would do I wish I could present this thing I wish to create or you needn't say articulate you're back to words aren't you but these feelings I'm trying to put here I wish I could draw them instead and I'm very jealous and resentful of anyone who manages to do that 
But same. This is another clunky segue. Writing about art and art and books are visual art. Your latest novel is about music and making music. And I was wondering about yes. um, other music books that you've read and loved or hated. I read um, Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman um, sort of while I was well into working on perfect tunes, but it did help me with some of the details that I had forgotten, even though I, you know, was alive and living in New York at the time that the book is set in sort of 2001 to like 2005 um, in the sort of downtown music scene. Um, I wasn't a cool person. Um, I mean, I was like decently cool, but I wasn't like really, really, really cool. Um, so I went into, you know, <laughs> add coolness, coolness uh, verisimilitude, and that helped me remember the details and also fill in some details that I did not have at my fingertips. I, I love a biography of a musician, like pretty much any biography of any musician, as long as it's sort of like decently well-written and not horribly sexist, which unfortunately a lot of them are. Um, I, I really loved Girls Like Us by uh, Sheila Weller which is a group biography of Joni Mitchell, Carly Simon, and uh, I forget who the third one, oh, Carol King, Carol King. She just put them together in a, re- in a way that made a ton of sense. Um, they're great foils for each other, and it's, a, it's a, like a pretty melodramatic, over-the-top book, which is great, and it totally suits the um, larger-than-life aspects of, of those uh, subjects. Yeah, I think like the way the way that she describes Joni Mitchell in that book probably helped inform my impression of what it's like to be like a, a really gifted songwriter, um, which Laura, the protagonist of Perfect Tunes, is, even though she doesn't, you know, attain Joni-like levels of <laughs> um, career momentum ever. But that sounds fascinating to bring those women together, you know, because I think they're all, I mean, not maybe so much uh, Joni Mitchell, but I do think that... Carly Simon is, in a way that, you know, let's be real, she was a very wealthy white woman who's enormously successful. Like, she's doing fine. She doesn't need our help. But I, I think sometimes people are really dismissive of her now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a great book to, for Carly fans especially to read because she really makes sure to, like, give Carly her due, even though she is, of course, like, the least, probably, like, the least critically acclaimed of the of those three women um you know and also like the the least prolific did did you read the um the cherry curry book um new and angel oh no it's totally on my on my you know endless pile of things that i should read i really want to read it yeah i mean that's definitely the sexism that she goes through and it's a bit weird like because kind of it is one of those like drugs and parties and fun and also total total horror and it's really addictive and great and then it's like and I found God and everything was fine that's a very small part of it but it's still slightly I don't know why I should be disappointed like she she wants to have a spiritual awakening and she's happy that's a a wonderful thing but it did it was I think there was something she says at the end about kind of the way she feels I think shame about her past and when you've been in the runaways and you have been exploited that much and you've been a very famous teenage girl to then embrace religion that makes you feel ashamed of just being a woman and all the ways that is expressed I'm 
Sherry, if you're listening, let me help. Let's have a conversation. <laughs> I, I really hope she's never going to hear this. Um, but I really, really did not like Kim Gordon's book. Um, and I love her music. I think, you know, I have a lot of respect for, you know, her, like the important role that she has played in just like the lives of many musicians, especially female musicians. Uh, but it's just this really sour grapesy book. And I feel like she probably had a co-writer or ghostwriter and they like didn't do enough to just get her to like dial back the, um, the vitriol. Cause she's like, she's such, she's so mean and, and, and it's not in like a cool or interesting or funny way. It's just like, don't be mean. Like she's really, she's really mean to, she's like, she's mean and dismissive about other women. And she's really like, and she's really mean about like the, I mean, totally understandable, but she's really mean to like the woman who Thurston more ended up with. And it's just like, you should have let this marinate for another couple of years, like post-divorce. Cause it seems like the wound was still really fresh and she shouldn't have been writing about it yet. But everyone reviewed that book very respectfully and was just like, Oh, like such a treat to get this perspective from. And it's like, no, this was not, this was not like the version of this that should have ultimately been published. It's very, my very niche and top secret opinion that I'm saying on a podcast. Sorry, Kim. I think you're really I think you're really smart and great. <laughs> like. I think that's so true that so you know because it's I remember you know those moments growing up whenever like someone wronged me and like <laughs> I will get revenge naturally. Yeah no it's never good it doesn't come out well you have to with WhatsApp friends um, a few of us are writers and if someone's been like I need a name for a terrible character who's your worst ex. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that's that's not true, and we never do that. No, we never do that. We totally do that. Um, <laughs> but I think also the way of like swapping it around, at least it means that it's not traceable because it's not it's someone else's ex in the book. But I've just read the Debbie Harry one, and I think that's really different because she is obviously looking back. You know, she's taking a much longer view of things. But I do think she's very generous, and. I think it's a really fun book. Did you read it? No, I really... Man, you're giving me all these great, like, musician bio reading lists that I should I should get on. I mean, I love Debbie Harry, obviously. I should definitely read it. It's a very, very quick read. I think I sort of gulped it down in a couple of mm-hmm. goes. And I'm fascinated by her. And something I think about a lot is because she's just so beautiful. And I think she worked out a way to wear that identity and that she was quite playful with it and I don't think that she ever took herself seriously as a beauty but something that's really apparent is that she I mean she had you know had some awful scary insane things happen to her it's also a book that is written by a woman of her generation where she is quite dismissive about some things that have happened to her as just being a, a byproduct of, you know, being punk in New York and in a way that I, you know, sometimes I struggle with because I'm like, please have some more compassion for yourself and all the other people mm-hmm. that this happens to by extension. But also for the most part, people are nice to her and she does have a lovely time. And it's because she looks like Debbie Harry. I think equally it's clear that sometimes she doesn't get that because I think that she is so beautiful. People are 
suspicious of the fact that she wants to be in CBGBs or whatever and, you know, be where she is doing what she's doing. It's really interesting hearing you talk about Kim Gordon, who is obviously... I'm not even sure if this is something that I can say. You know, Kim Gordon is a very beautiful woman also, but that's not that's never been, I think, a tool that she's used or something she stood for. Mm-hmm. But how different securities and insecurities manifest itself and give you that different lens on the world and who you are in it. I loved what you just said, though, about how you have to be careful in the way that you write about the things that have happened to you because it's you don't want to be dismissive of an experience that might have been really traumatic for someone else who's experienced it. And that is something that I find comes up a lot in writing from women of Debbie Harris' generation, women of, you know, the generation that's just before us, like women who are in their 40s and 50s now, they're they're like, oh, you know, just raped a few times, no big deal, suck it up. And it's like, uh, just like, just paying my dues. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other can of worms. But uh, I think I was trying to figure out, I don't know if I expressed it exactly in like the perfect way that I wish that I could have been able to, but when I reviewed um, Megan Dom's most recent book, I, I think I, I tried to write about that. I don't know that book. Uh, tell me about it. Well, yeah, don't. Don't know it. <laughs> I, I, hope you, I hope you never have to be exposed to it. No, it's just, it's this sort of sad book that I love Megan Dom's writing. I think she's a brilliant writer. Um, she's written a lot of really great books. Um, Somewhere along the line, more recently, she got sort of like lightly red-pilled, and now she has some very conservative political beliefs and uh, is sort of in the in the realm of people who think that they're being silenced when people disagree with them, you know. Um, and the, and so so the most recent book is sort of a, a product of of that. I hate that. Yeah. We, I kind of hate that we know so much about writers now I probably shouldn't say this but I'm going to um Alison Pearson's novels I really enjoyed and the second one which I can't remember what it's called she wrote um I don't know how she does it and there was a movie Mm -hmm. of it it's a really thoughtful book and it's kind of it's very much sold and packaged and presented as a sort of a rom-com but it's about a woman's life getting real and having teenage children and being just fed up in your marriage and I think she's trying to work again and trying to sort of make things happen but I thought it was really honest and vulnerable and painful and darkly funny and great yet the author is um kind of an insane brexiteer lady um (laughs) and she recently reviewed um that show I May Destroy You and it was her review in the Telegraph was along the lines of, "It's so great you forget that the cast is all black." You're like, Jesus Christ! God, where did that come from? And I wonder whether this oh, is man. to live online in the way that that we do. Firstly, I don't think it is good for any of us ever to be giving vent to these things. But also, there are a few, and I think there are probably a lot more in the US, but certainly here, quite a lot of people who were you know, really great opinion writers in the sort of the 90s and early aughts. He wrote these sort of very charming, fun, you know, kind of a bit artsy. And all of a sudden, as you say, it's the it's the red pill. They have become right-wing contrarians. And I think depressingly, mm-hmm. especially maybe women more than men, you can make a lot of money and be quite successful if you're prepared to say these sort of unconscionable things that are just 
I believe the views of someone who has no no compassion or no understanding of the humanity of humans as a whole but it's such a cheap way to get that kind of notoriety I guess yeah I mean if you wanted to be really cynical about it you would go all the way to saying that this is just sort of like what the current like marketplace of ideas rewards and so we shouldn't be surprised by it because the more polarizing your viewpoints are of course like the bigger of an audience you can expect and that's just how you make yourself stand out from the pack now is just by being as extreme in various ways as possible. I don't know if I really am that much of a cynic though. I do think some of it, especially for women is like deeply felt. And when I am able to empathize with it, I like, you know, it's just so hard when they're saying things that like erase the lived experience and identities of people who I care about and I really want to um, hew to the possibly overly simplistic dictum that we shouldn't let creators who turn out to be sort of like reprehensible human beings take their art away from us like we get to keep what they've made regardless of who they've become what they've done in their lives like in other words we can still have like harry potter you know like she can't take that away from us (laughs) like um we shouldn't let her take that away from us like we shouldn't let woody allen like take his early movies away from us with like who you know who he is and who he's become it's hard it's easier said than done though it's hard to just sort of like you know wipe the slate clean it's much easier when people have been like dead for 100 years so complicated and I think a lot of it is to do with the way that we have always I think defined ourselves by the art we love and it's really uncomfortable and we have to separate the art from the artist if we want to to keep doing that and you know and it starts when we are you know making mixtapes and things and you know and really that's what what I'm doing here is finding out you know who a person is from what they (laughs) they love to read we need to find a more positive thing to end on um I know (laughs) is there anything on your reading pile that you're really excited about getting to yes I get to interview Sigrid Nunez soon about her new book um which has just come in the mail and I'm really really excited to get started because I love all of her books so much um the most recent uh being the friend um which i think from what i've read this one touches on some of the same uh you know midlife grief and mortality themes so that should be a really like pleasant uplifting read and i i can't wait to delve in no but she's just a master and all of her sentences are perfect and so that should be like a nice refreshing balm for my poor tired brain excited that sounds fabulous well there are so many books that you've talked about that you've recommended that I'm desperate to read so oh good well likewise I mean that's what that's what we listen to this podcast for like that's why we do it so huge thanks to Emily do read perfect tunes it's funny it's moving and reflective and I'd especially recommend it to you if you're feeling a little bit derailed by 2020 and you need reminding that you're not alone I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked and if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make me incredibly happy and grateful if you could leave us a five-star review. It's what helps new listeners to find the podcast. I'll leave you with this from Margaret Atwood. 
wanting to meet an author because you like their work is like wanting to meet a duck because you like pate. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.